Hello, and welcome to my office. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and this is Beyond the Prescription, the show where I talk with my guests like I do my patients, pulling the curtain back on what it means to be healthy, redefining health as more than the absence of disease. As a primary care doctor for over 20 years, I've realized that patients are much more than their cholesterol and their weight. Our stories live in our bodies. I'm here to help people tell their story and for you to imagine and potentially get healthier from the inside out. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter at lucymcbride.com newsletter and to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. Today's guest is the unapologetically authentic lawyer, author, and public speaker, Mike Bassett. Mike is the author of The Man in the Ditch, which describes in great detail his story of criminal activity that led him on a path to self-destruction, and it's about his redemption, self-forgiveness, and realization that good people can do bad things. Mike has not only been in the ditch, but he has excavated himself out of it and is teaching others about self-forgiveness, honesty, and living an authentic life. Mike, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Lucy, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You are unapologetically passionate and transparent and someone who's never stopped believing in the power of doing the next good thing. However, you did some, quote, bad things in your earlier life. In 2001, you were staring at a pile of fraudulent checks that your friend blackmailed you into cashing that led you into some trouble. And before we get to that moment, because I believe that people's stories are informed by events in our childhood, traumas, hardships, I'd love to go back to you as a young boy being raised by a single mother with bipolar disorder and early experiences in your life that may have led you to make decisions that were dishonest when you're not a dishonest person. Can you take me back to what it was like in your early years? The year is 1966, because I'm five years old. My mom and I are living in central El Paso in a two-room apartment. I thought a lot of people set their groceries outside every night in a cardboard box in the winter to keep them cold. It was only later that I learned that my mother could never get around to paying the light bill, so we would have to sit our groceries outside to keep them cold. The problem was there were cats in the neighborhood who would always come and drink the milk that was in the box. So I remember having to have cereal with water when I was growing up. And to this day, just the thought of it turns my stomach. The second thing I remember is the chaos. And I don't know if anybody who's listening has ever lived with somebody who is bipolar or manic depressive or may have a mental illness. And I simply remember the chaos that always reigned in our home and always feeling like you never knew what was going to happen next. And I distinctly remember what the kitchen looked like in our little apartment and how the dishes were piled in the sink. And fast forward to today, every night before I go to bed, I clean the kitchen completely and wipe down all the counters with disinfectant. It's fascinating because children need to be fed, loved, and given a sense of 
agency when they're young to feel confident, to grow their self-esteem, to become who they are. It's sort of a central tenet. It lays the groundwork for our our future is having a sense of safety, security, and feeling loved. And so when you had that chaos all around you, it must have been destabilizing in some way. It must have affected how you viewed the world and how you coped with your own internal world. I mean, do you remember how you felt as a young boy? Like, did it manifest in your body? Did it manifest in your sleep or the way you behaved at school as a youngster? You know, when we are young, we are very egocentric and we think that what we do controls the world around us. So I remember very early feeling, well, if I did the right thing, if I acted right, everything would go well, which is a simplistic and understandable way of thinking for a five or six year old, but is fatalistic for an adult. And that's absolutely what I remember and what I have struggled with my entire life. And that is the feeling of if I do X, things will work out. We know that's not true. It's really a trauma response. When people are feeling threatened, when we have threats to our safety and our health, our body goes into that fight or flight mode. And we think if we can control something, then we will actually be in control of the universe. I mean, it's why patients of mine, for example, who are adult children of alcoholics often suffer from perfectionism or what you might call OCD, but this sort of hypervigilance and desire to keep things in tidy boxes when that isn't really realistic or sustainable and actually can do harm to people. Because when we try to control the uncontrollable, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. We are. And, you know, it's funny. I think I've gotten better at it over the years, but there are certain slices of my life that I very much control. So every night I set my clothes out for the morning because I don't like to make decisions. If you looked in my closet, you would see that all of the shirts are hung by color. All of the pants are hung by color. All of the suits are hung by color. And it's very, very regimented. If you looked at my desk at the end of the day, it would look like a surgical suite because I can't stand the clutter and the chaos. I've gotten better when I'm around other people and if things aren't put away, but it still lingers. And I think we are mistaken if we believe that folks are not impacted by the environment in which they are raised. I think you're 100% right. And this is why as a physician, it's not enough for me to understand patients through the lens of their lab test results. It's the what is the what question. It's the why. It's the how did we land in a situation where you're overusing alcohol, you're binge eating, you have the tools in front of you to manage your diabetes, but you aren't executing on those things. It's not about telling people from my vantage point, here's what you have to do or else. It's not about shaming people. It's about understanding the person and the story behind the lab tests and what they bring to the doctor's office. And by the way, your closet sounds amazing. It sounds a lot like mine because I am, too, a recovering perfectionist. I wish my kids could have a little bit more of that organization and fussiness with their room cleanliness, but I digress. Only one mountain at a time. Just, that's right. You got your closet squared away. That's the best you're going to do. That's, that's right. Actually, what's interesting about the closet metaphor, or in your case, the actual closet, is that sometimes when I talk to patients about addressing their mental health, I talk about the closet analogy, meaning when you clean out your closet, if you're going to do it, you have to make a mess first. You have to take everything out, look at the different piles of crap, right? And the piles of things that are hidden gems, like things that you never knew you even owned, tags on shirts you bought 10 years ago, things that need to be hemmed, things that need to be put into the goodwill pile, things that need to be thrown out, and things that need to be brought out to light. 
it's an analogy I commonly use because we got a lot of stuff up here, a lot of baggage. And it can be helpful to think about cleaning out the closets, literally, but also cleaning out the mental closets to be healthier. Let's talk about the fact that good people do bad things. I have three teenagers. We talk about this kind of thing a lot. Doing something bad doesn't make you bad or evil. I mean, there are things that are evil, like murdering someone in cold blood. How did it happen that you got in trouble? And tell me that story. And how did it pertain to the childhood early years that you just described? I will start the story and I can do it pretty quickly. So the year is 1994. I have been licensed seven years as a lawyer. I'm doing work for an insurance company. I get a call. They say, we'd like to hire you to represent a trucking company on a small case. My point of contact at the trucking company was a guy that we will call Sam and is often the case in our side of the docket. If you do well on a smaller case, you get bigger cases. If people trust you, you get more work. And Sam loved the work that we did, and we liked doing work for him. And then in 1996, another lawyer and I split off from the firm we were at and started our own firm, and Sam's business followed us. And they had a lot of trucks that ran through Texas, and they got sued a lot, and Sam would hire us a lot. And I got to know Sam. You know, it's funny, a lot of people are listening, they forget that before the pandemic, people used to go places all the time and travel all the time, and Sam was one of those people. If we had a mediation or a deposition, he would come in the night before, which meant he and I went to many dinners together. And I got to know Sam, and I got to know his family. And he got to know me and he got to know my family. In fact, he came out to our house in Waxahachie and broke bread around our table. And even as a fellow Catholic, went to mass with my family. So I thought Sam had gone from being a client to a friend, somebody that respected me for what I did, somebody that I respected for what he did. And it was a very symbiotic relationship, but it had gone beyond just attorney and client. Sam was one of those personalities that everybody knew. And he was very generous. He knew a lot of lawyers. So in January of 2001, I got a huge box in my office from Sam that was full of Green Bay Packers memorabilia, signed footballs, signed team prints, signed jerseys, all stuff that he knew my young sons would love. So I called him. I said, Sam, I can't believe you did this. Thank you so much. He goes, happy to do it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I said, really, I, I appreciate it. He said, did you see what I gave you? And I said, no, I didn't. I saw the footballs. I saw this. He goes, no, there's something in there for you. So I unpacked everything. And at the bottom of the box, Lucy is an envelope containing three checks, three checks made payable to me from companies for whom Sam worked, but on cases I wasn't working on. And I thought it odd. And I said, well, Sam, there's a problem here because these checks, they're made payable to me. No one makes checks payable to me. And I don't know any of these cases. And he said, very breezy, easy, listen, no worries. What I want you to do is deposit those checks in your firm's trust account. And I want you to give me 75% of the money and you keep 25. The checks totaled about 10,000 bucks. I said, we're not going to do that, Sam. And he said, well, here's the deal. The checks are made payable to you. Go ahead and cash them and just give me the money. It's making and my palm sweat just listening to this story. I said, no, Sam, we're not going to do that either. I said, dude, do you need 10,000 bucks? This is how close I thought we were. I didn't even think I was overstepping a bound. Do you need $10,000? Is something going on? And so the Sam that had been just sort of carefree, then his tone changed. And I don't know whether this is a G-rated show or an R-rated show, so I'll give you the G-rated version. He said, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take those checks and you're going to cash them and you're going to give me the money. And if you don't, I will pull every bit of business I have from your firm and everybody in the trucking industry to whom I have referred to you, I will tell them that you have lost it. 
Now, at that point in time, I think that was about $500,000 a year in business. So at that moment, Lucy, I'm not 40-year-old Mike sitting in my corner office looking over downtown Dallas. I'm six-year-old Mike in that crappy kitchen with my mom telling me, listen, you're going to have to go live with the Bassets. So that is where we are. It makes so much sense in a crazy way that you under siege at this moment where your friend has betrayed you, your friend has completely done a 180 on his personality and your trust in him, that you revert to those primitive thought patterns and primitive behaviors. You go back to that, what we call in layman's terms, the quote, inner child, right? Where you immediately jump tracks into that mindset of fear, panic, and how am I going to protect myself, even if it means doing the wrong thing at this moment? You're absolutely right. And the threat was you having to live with the Bassets, who ended up being your adoptive parents. Parents. One of the best things that ever happened to me in my life. But the threat of it back then when you were little, even though your mom was quite dysfunctional and sick, was terrifying, I think. Well, yeah, because even if your mom, you know, God love her, is not well, she's your mom. That is what you know. And when they're like, listen, this is not going to work out. You're going to go live with Herbie and Jean. You know, your six-year-old brain thinks, okay, obviously I've done something, right? This, I, what I did caused this. And now I'm 40 and you have someone saying, listen, I will abandon you and I will tell others to abandon you. But I want to be very clear about this. This is not just what Sam did. This was a stupid decision I make. And I tell everybody this. I don't want anybody to think he's trying to shirk responsibility. That was one of the stupidest things. I'm going to say the stupidest thing I've ever done. And part of it was on me. Absolutely. I think it's important that you you name that. You were a victim in many ways, but you're not playing the victim now. And part of what you have done in your life, in your second chapter, is take full responsibility for that decision. And not only have you taken full responsibility, you have learned from it. And now you're helping other people realize that good people do bad things. It's all about how you recover and how you then use the lessons to then better yourself and improve the world around you. So what happened after you decided to go dark? I cashed the checks. I gave him the money. And from that point on, my life would never be the same. Now, for a year, nothing happened. I continued to get Sam's business. He continued to refer people to us. And I thought it had all blown over. And I still think that's somewhere between a pipe dream and naive. And in early 2002, the House of Cards came crumbling down because it was apparent to me that the FBI was in on Sam's scheme, because during the course of a routine audit, Lucy, they found out that Sam was doing this to what I learned was the tune of about a million bucks. And he would send these checks to other lawyers across the United States. And sadly, many of them did run them through their trust accounts where they were keeping money instead of cashing checks and giving it over, which is still stupid, but they were keeping some of the money. So I remember January 16th, 2002, leaving my office in Dallas and having to drive home and tell my wife that I had ruined our lives. Tell me about that moment. <laughs> you know, I said, nothing's off limits. That conversation with my wife and that five or 10 minutes is still 21 years later, is still too raw and too hurtful to share. Let's just say, Lucy, it was not my best day. My wife, who is not a lawyer, had the wherewithal to say, you need to get a lawyer. That day, we drove up and met a dear friend of mine, Martin Lenore, 
who then that day sent me over to a psychiatrist who ended up treating me for over two years for depression and anxiety. And that's where the journey started in January of 2002. And when did you get into self-medicating with alcohol? Was that during the year of sort of thinking, oh, I got away with this or was it after? No, it was after. It was after because I was being treated with a psychiatrist who was very helpful. You know, work became my therapy. I had to rebuild my reputation. Not only had I burned my reputation to the ground, I had bulldozed over it and laid a concrete slab over my reputation. So I had to rebuild it and work was all I had. And I would go through these crushing bouts, Lucy, of anxiety. And it would not be like building anxiety. It would be fall off a cliff, stomach up in your throat anxiety, where you think I'm going to prison for the rest of my life. I will never see my family again. And then at the next minute, I would think, you know what? I think it's all going to work out. It was during those times that oftentimes I would self-medicate with alcohol, which is, a again, another stupid thing to do. But if your listeners remember nothing else, here's what I tell everybody. Every one of us, I don't care who you are, where you went to school, how much money you have, where you grew up, what you drive, everybody is one left turn away from being in the ditch. And it doesn't have to be a big, big turn. It can just be a slight deviation and we can all end up in the ditch. And the ditch can be, you know, a bad decision. It can be a hard diagnosis. It can be the loss of a loved one. It can be mental illness itself. It can be something that really can turn your life into something you never envisioned. You were sent to a halfway house. You mm-hmm. were threatened with jail time. What was the consequence of the actions you took? So as far as the federal government goes, I pled guilty to one count, and the federal judge sentenced me to 90 days in a halfway house. And when I say halfway house, I want to be very clear. I want listeners to think of the most depressing nursing home they've ever seen and ever been in. You got that picture? Now paint it with more depression and anxiety and fear. And that's what the halfway house was. It was literally an old nursing home. And so I was there for 90 days. I could leave at six in the morning, but I had to be back by six at night. Every time I left the office, Lucy, for anything, a deposition, a hearing, to lunch, I had to call and let them know. I had to call them when I was leaving the office to go back there. And I did that for 90 days. It was not pleasant. The Bureau of Prisons has a lot of rules, and most of them really suck. What were your relationships like at this point? I mean, you were a father, still are. You had a wife. They must have felt incredibly betrayed and horrified. How did all of this affect your relationships within your family? You know, I think for at least the first year, it was just put your head down and power through and make it through it. Just go from one day to the other to get through it. And it wasn't until years later, I mean, years later, Lucy, that I visited with my sons who are now almost 36 and 34, and we've talked about it. You know, my story was they were in junior high and high school, and I thought it kids would be brutal, and maybe they were just being kind to me, but they told me, you know, it really never came up that much. It just wasn't that big a deal. And I guess it's good that teenagers are so self-absorbed, maybe because nobody thought about it. And this is really before the age of what I'm going to call social media and the internet. So we're talking 2002, so that maybe that wasn't a big deal. My wife and I had a lot of work to do because I violated a lot of trust. But the thing is, while she wasn't pleased and she let me know that, she knows me well enough to lead with, I am never leaving. Semicolon, however, comma, what the were you thinking? She is not a wallflower, this woman, it sounds like. No, she is not. 
In fact, I still remember the weekend after that I just went radioactive and burned everything down. The weekend after, I was sitting on the couch and I said to her again, listen, I'm never going to practice law again. I've ruined my reputation. I'm radioactive. And this is all on me, all on me. I am proud to say, I'm not proud of many things. I'm proud to say never during this whole event did I say, I can't believe Sam did that to me. It was, I did this to myself. And I told her, so I'm never going to do it again. And she looked at me and I can still remember what she said. She goes, here's the deal. You were meant to be a lawyer. You are going to practice law because that's what you are meant to do. And she said it with no fear in her voice, no trepidation, no question. And she meant it. And the next day she starts on a business plan. We get a budget. We get a line of credit from our banker. And then we were off to the races. Let's talk about the process of other people forgiving you for what you did and how you hurt them. And then let's talk about forgiving ourselves. Shame is part of the human condition. In other words, if you don't have shame, you're really a sociopath. At the same time, shame is potentially very toxic to our brains. And if we lead with shame, shame then drives us to engage in self-destructive behaviors or self-destructive narratives. You know, shame is this notion of I am bad. Guilt is I did something bad. Shame is I am bad. How did you begin to rebuild and gain forgiveness from your family and loved ones first? You know, it's funny. I did not have to ask for forgiveness in the sense of go beg for it and repeat for it. The people in the family that knew led with it. I am so sorry that this happened to you. I would ask for their forgiveness. And they said, of course, we forgive you. I was very fortunate in that way with the nuclear family that knew about it. Now, when we go beyond that to colleagues and friends, I learned early on, all I could do was reach out and apologize to people. And that was all I could do. I put it out there with zero expectation that anything came back. And frankly, not much of it came back. And that's okay. That is okay. That's somebody else's decision. That's not mine. Now, the other one, the self-forgiveness, I will tell you, that is not a one and done. That is a daily. For me, at least, that is a daily event. You talk about cleaning out the closet. I call it the deep work that we have to do. And that's something we've got to do daily. At least I do. There's no amount of color coding our suits or dresses in the closet that is going to allow us to forgive ourselves. So what does that daily work look like for you? Is it therapy? Is it prayer? Is it exercise? Is it time in nature? What is the process? So when I'm the best version of myself, it involves daily prayer. It involves exercise. Once a week, I talk to a therapist by Zoom. I don't work too much and I plug into my family. Those are the weeks that I'm the best version of myself. What does exercise do for you in terms of forgiveness and sense of agency? It clears the cobwebs, and it just gives you a sense to me that I have taken care of myself because one of the things that I have realized, you know, so much of what we do is very good on one side, but very detrimental on the other. For every bright light we shine out, there's a shadow side. And one of mine was I worked and I always took care of other people. And I always wanted to take care of other people's problems and solve problems for people, which is a good thing to a point. But when you do it to sacrifice yourself, 
You know, I will tell you today, as we record this, I looked over at my calendar while I was waiting for the Zoom call to come on. And I looked and I thought, you know, I was going to go to the gym after a call at 530. But I see a two and a half hour block in the middle of the day. And I'm like, you know what? That's when I'm going to the gym. That is a huge step for somebody like me who takes pride in the grind. So I'm going to take two and a half hours in the big fat middle of a Friday afternoon and go to the gym for nobody but me. That's so important. You know, exercise is something I naturally talk about with people every day in the office. It's not just about cholesterol and blood sugar management. It's about mental stability. Exercise is important for managing anxiety, managing fear, sleep. And then, as you just said, that sense of self-care, which is an overused word and people roll their eyes at, but it's a way of prioritizing self because you only have this one vehicle to drive you through life. You have to take care of it mentally and physically to be healthy. And you know, you talked about forgiveness of self. I will tell you, so for the last three days, I've been not able to go to the gym. I had something on Tuesday that kept me just, I was full all day. Wednesday, I traveled all day. I mean, literally at the airport at 530 and got back. And yesterday was a dumpster fire. So for three days, I didn't go to the gym. And I had to talk to my wife each night and say, you know what? I'm feeling bad. I didn't go to the gym because one of the symptoms of being a perfectionist is I'm all knobs right. I mean, if we're going to the gym, it's by God every day, every freaking day, which is completely unhealthy and deranged. But I still struggle with that. I still struggle. Is with that it. black or white thinking that so many people suffer from when they've experienced childhood trauma or maybe they were wired like that to begin with? I can't do it perfectly. Screw it. I'm not doing it. Right. It's workaholism. It's exercise obsession and addiction. It's guns blazing all the time instead of realizing that sometimes getting a B plus is better than getting an A. Sometimes sitting with uncomfortable thoughts and feelings is the way to unpack them and then process them and then feel better instead of avoiding those thoughts by throwing ourselves into the gym the for two thing. hours or the legal case for the entire day. Talk to me about going to therapy as one of your methods of finding peace with your old self and moving forward. Sometimes when I suggest therapy to people, they think, oh, I've got friends for that. Or what can the therapist tell me that I don't already know? Or I don't need to air my dirty laundry. Or my favorite one is, you think I'm that crazy? And I'm like, no, 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 you're not crazy. You're human. You know, we spend a lot of time pinging around in our own brains. I mean, it's really, really helpful to have someone to sit there with you and your thoughts, download them, look at them from a distance and realize, hey, that thought pattern that then leads to this behavior is actually a problem. It's not rooted in actually a fact pattern. As you talked about with the volume knobs, let's turn the volume down on that dysfunctional thought and behavior pattern and turn the volume up on the thought patterns that are rooted in reality and that actually lead to better health and well-being. So tell me what therapy is for you. I'm assuming it's more than just a shoulder to cry on. And the therapy really started back when our sons were little. As a family, we would go to therapy. And I think it was very useful. And it's funny because neither my wife or I ever came from a family who like did therapy. But we realized, you know what, we needed for our family. So I became a huge believer in it, just an absolute huge believer in it. I kind of fell away from it. And then after everything happened, I kind of just relied on myself. But it was really during the pandemic, interestingly enough, when you take away all of the chatter, 
all of the travel, all of everything else. And I thought, you know what? I could probably really check in with somebody every week. And to me, one of the best things to me, Lucy, is I get to be the center of attention for 30 minutes. I can talk about what I'm feeling for 30 minutes with somebody and have somebody tell me in an unfiltered way what they are seeing and hearing. Yeah, it's a reflection. And not only that, hopefully you have a therapist who helps you kind of connect the dots between some of the thoughts and the feelings and the behaviors. Because after all, therapy is different from talking to your friends. Your friends are there for the unconditional support and love. And friends are not going to always be honest with you. They're not going to be like, hey, Mike, that's insane. Yeah. And the therapist should be pretty honest with you. Right. And your friends are not trained in that. Correct. I mean, sure, they're good to talk to and they're wonderful to have. But to me, you need somebody that is going to listen to you. And the sole purpose is let's help Mike be a better version of himself. How do we do that? That's right. And we all have those friends who we adore and love and treasure, but you'll be on a walk with them or on the phone and say, you know, this crazy thing happened to me. I just like need to talk about it. And then they're like, oh, this crazy thing happened to me. Let me tell you. And you're like, so yeah, you're right. Therapy is not just about being at the center of the universe. It's about having that space and time to go through with a fine tooth comb what's actually going on internally. And have someone listen and then give you feedback and challenge you in a thoughtful and loving way, but to challenge you. And like you said, to call bullshit and go, that's no, not buying that. In fact, my best friends are my friends who call bullshit on me because I really appreciate that. And I have friends. And, you know, when I tell them something, they'll say, really? 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 Yeah. Do you draw a distinction between therapy and faith? I know you're a man of faith and faith is important to you and has sustained you through hard times. How do you see the difference between going to therapy once a week and going to church once a week, for example? I don't know if there's a lot of difference because they're both so good for my soul. In what different ways, though? Because otherwise you'd go to church twice a week and skip the therapy or go to therapy twice a week and skip the church. So I think with therapy, it is very much this is what I'm feeling this is what I'm doing, getting feedback on what about this and what about that. Whereas I go to church or I go on an eight-day silent retreat, and I sort of get a sense of where I am and where I need to be going and what's going on in my life, very much in the 100,000-foot view. Therapy is, you know, every week you're on a micro level at that point, and you are tinkering and doing things. But, you know, faith, that answers the bigger question. And that is, what is my purpose? Why am I here? What am I doing? What am I called to do? It's important, I think, for people who are listening to realize that faith and therapy are not mutually exclusive. I think they are different ways of processing our internal world, the world we live in. And there's no mandate that people have to be religious or in therapy. It's just, you know, it's like having a diverse portfolio of stocks, for example, You want to have a diverse portfolio of coping mechanisms. So when I counsel a patient who's depressed on managing their mood, it's a combination of things. It's not just medication. It's not just therapy. It's not just exercise. It's about finding the balance between behaviors, biochemistry, and self-awareness that people often find the path forward. And it works for me. And it doesn't work for everybody. But it's something that has really sustained me. And that's one of the things my time in the ditch did was strengthen my faith that would have never, ever happened had I not been in the ditch. 
By the way, the eight-day silent retreat sounds like poison to me. I mean, I am just like a hyper person, particularly this moment in my life. But it sounds like it would be so helpful. I mean, what is it like to be quiet for eight days? It's amazing. And it's learned. I started doing silent retreats with the Jesuits well in 2003. And they were three days, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, and then leave on Sunday. So I started with those and I enjoyed those. And then I graduated up the first day and a half. Lucy, it is like just what I picture is a huge engine that you're just letting run down. And that is just your mind slowing down. And it's funny, I keep a moleskin notebook with me. And every time I have a work thought, I just write it down because I just need to get it out of my mind and I keep it with me. And it takes a good day and a half. The last retreat I went on last October took me two full days to simmer down and just stop the monkey brain. And after that, it's just amazing the clarity it brings and the ability you have to just look at things because you're not rushed, but you've got the whole day ahead of you. And to think about things, I think they are life-giving. They're not for everybody, but they're something to me that just makes a huge difference. And you've got to be in the season in your life. I mean, with three kids, I don't know how you could do that, but I'm in a season in my life where I can and I thoroughly enjoy it. Yeah, I think a lot of us live in that kind of monkey brain, like volume 11 mode and never let ourselves come down from it. It's why, you know, meditation is sort of a necessity of modern life. People roll their eyes all the time when I suggest meditation. I roll my eyes at myself when I suggest it, frankly. I'm like, oh, God, I'm supposed to meditate. I'd rather look at Twitter. But it's a way of being back in the present moment and it's a way of sort of taking away that high volume chatter and being more present. But I think it's hard. It is not easy. And it's not for sissies. And it's not for everybody. You know, my wife loves centering prayer. And that is where you sit and try to clear your mind. I've tried to do it. No way. Uh-uh. Put a gun to my head. Couldn't do it. I just can't. Some people love it. What I like to do on silent retreats is walk and just walk and think and just walk and think. You know, it's amazing the problems you can solve or the answers that you can get when you're just thinking and walking and looking. Your book, The Man in the Ditch, was a passion project. It strikes me as something that wasn't just for you, but for others as well. Can you talk to me about what the book has done for you and then for other people and how you're using that platform and your podcast to kind of pay it forward with the lessons you've learned? Yeah, so there's a character in the book, Jim Stanton, who is a dear friend of mine, who told me for 20 years, you need to write a book. And I would say, Jim, no one wants to listen to my story. And I meant it, I, whatever. And then I realized I want to tell my story. So it starts with a speech I give in 2019. And then the pandemic hits. And I'm thinking, you know what? I've always wanted to write a book. I turned 60 in August of 2021. Yeah, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to have it published by my 60th birthday. So that's where I started. And it is a passion project. And I had the framework of it. And I worked with a wonderful editor and author by the name of Alex Davis. And she helped me put it together. And I did it really as sort of a story of hope for people that will find themselves in the ditch. You made a good point, Lucy, earlier. In my case, the ditch was self-inflicted. I went to the shed. I got the shovel. I dug the ditch. Sometimes people end up in the ditch and it is out of the blue. It's a cancer diagnosis. It's a death. It is something that you have zero control over. You're still punched in the mouth. And so what I wanted to do was say, here's what I did, because if you don't have vulnerability, I don't think people are going to listen to you. Here's what I did. And this is the way I got out. And this is what I did that helped me. And so to answer your question, what has it done for others? 
I can only tell you the feedback I have gotten has been amazing. I'm sure there are people out there who have heard me talk and think it sucked. I'm sure there's people who've read the book and got four pages in and said, what a waste. I have not heard from those people. But what I hear is, you know, my brother just got out of prison. I can't imagine what it's like for him. You know, I had somebody do this to me one time when I was a young lawyer, and I said, no. I'm under criminal investigation right now. Can I talk to you? I'm worried that so-and-so in my family is involved in something they shouldn't be. What can I do to help? I did something in my past that I'm ashamed of. How do I deal with it? And so that's what I'm getting. You know, we started the podcast and the pandemic, too, because I was so damn tired of the negativity. It doesn't take anybody of any intelligence to be a flamethrower and just to be hateful. It takes zero intelligence. You get a pissed off four-year-old in a grocery store, they're pissed off. I wanted to do something different, and that was maybe bring some positivity, some light, just maybe to get people thinking. From my perspective, it's been very well received, and I know that I get more than I give every time I speak on the book. Mike, I really, really, really am moved by what you're saying because you're right that when we share bits of ourselves, particularly if you've reflected on the vulnerable parts and the hard parts, you really are paying it forward and affecting other people's lives in very meaningful ways. In the world we live in, it's more unusual, from what I can tell, for men particularly Texan men, to share these tender parts of their lives, to throw themselves under the bus, if you will, and to talk about criminal activity as a path towards forgiveness and redemption. That, to me, is really critical. You know, women are suffering all over the country and the world, right? This is a hard, hard time for women. I mean, look what's happening in Iran. Look at what's happening in our own country. Men are suffering, too, and men are not socialized to talk about their feelings. Women aren't either, but men, you know, are taught to be, you know, be a man, suck it up. And so I think for you as a man, a Texan man, a Texan lawyer, male, to be as vulnerable and tender and filled with humor and self-forgiveness is really something else. Well, it is a gift that I got from my time in the ditch. Somebody asked me the other day, if you could go back and do it differently, I said, no, I wouldn't. I would never wish it on my worst enemy, but it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Well, and to the extent that you are taking mistakes and impulsive behavior that your inner child thrust upon you, and then you're using that as fuel to then help other people and better yourself, strengthen your relationships with your own family is really important. I love that your son is your podcast producer. I think that's so cute. <laughs> I couldn't do the podcast without him because he writes all the cold opens and he knows me better than anybody. It is wonderful. And he's such a gifted writer. And we banter back and forth on stuff. And, you know, he writes my speeches. When I go speak, I'm going to speak in a couple of weeks to a bunch of law students, and he will write the speech for me and I will craft it. So I'm very fortunate to be able to not only see him every day, but to be able to work with him. That is such a blessing. It is such a compliment to you, Mike. I mean, even if they as teenagers thought this was kind of not a big deal or didn't affect their lives in any way, I'm sure as they grew up, they realized, wow, this is kind of monumental what dad has done and what he's been through. And so to have that bond and have him not only see you for who you are, but actually help promote your message is pretty cool. It is very cool. And my oldest son, CJ, and I write about this in the book, I remember him coming home. He lives in Austin. And when I was at the halfway house, you got a little cubby that they put your stuff in. 
and I got a brass key ring and it had 048 on it. Imagine going to an old hotel. Remember where I had the brass key rings? And this was about the size of a half dollar and it had 048. And I just remember it was on my keys and my son saw it at one point, probably on a Sunday when I got to go to mass. And he came home one day and he had a circle on his arm. Both of my sons have a lot of tattoos. And it was that circle of 048. And I said, why did you do that? He goes, dude, that's a reminder of how one gets through life and struggles and how proud I am of you. And I'm like, wow. Oh so gosh, coming, from a, coming from a cynical 36-year-old, I think that's one of the highest compliments I can get. I'd take it and I'd tuck that away and just enjoy that moment and that relationship as you do. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I'm so fortunate. Mike, I cannot thank you enough for joining me today and for sharing your story and how it affected your whole life and how you're using it to forgive yourself and then pay it forward. It's pretty amazing. Thank you again. Lucy, thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed our time together. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you catch your podcasts. I'd be thrilled if you like this episode to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question, please drop us a line at info at The views expressed on this show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice for individuals. That should be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at Podville Media in Washington, D.C.